0: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a major opportunity for President Joe Biden to make a very powerful Washington institution a little bit more like America. The question of what kind of country we want to be is increasingly decided not by elected representatives of our multiracial democracy, but by appointed members of the Supreme Court. The biggest issues like reproductive rights and voting rights, protections for immigrants and the environment, and as we found out just this week, the future of affirmative action. And now President Biden will make his mark on the high court with the unexpected news that Associate Justice Stephen Breyer plans to retire at the end of his term. It's unexpected in the sense that Justice Breyer has refused to telegraph his intentions. And it gives President Biden a rare opening on the nine justice court, not for an ideological switch. It's not going to change the fundamental makeup of the now six to three right wing court, but it does give him the opportunity to fill that seat for decades to come and to make good on a major campaign promise.
1: I'm looking forward to making sure there's a black woman on the Supreme Court to make sure
2: we in fact get every representation. Not a joke, not a joke.
0: White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the president stands by that pledge, but offered no specifics ahead of a formal announcement from Justice Breyer. But a host of names have already emerged as possible nominees. Among them, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, appointed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals by President Biden last year to replace Merrick Garland. She was confirmed with the support of all 50 Democratic senators and three Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski and Lindsey Graham. Justice Leonora Kruger, an associate justice of the California Supreme Court, Judge J. Michelle Childs of the U.S. District Court for the District of South Carolina. Judge Leslie Abrams Gardner of U.S. District Court for Georgia. And Sherilyn Eiffel, President of the President and Lead Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. After the rampant Republican obstruction of President Obama's judicial nominees led to Harry Reid changing the filibuster rules, we should be prepared for a major political fight. Minority Leader Addison Mitchell McConnell III told Hugh Hewitt last year that he'd probably block any nominee if Republicans regain Senate control and a seat on the court opens up.
3: If you were back as the Senate Republican leader, and I hope you are, and a Democrat retires at the end of 2023 and they're 18 months, that would be the Anthony Kennedy precedent. Would they get a fair shot at a hearing, not a radical, but a normal mainstream liberal? Well, we'd have to wait
0: and see what what happens. That old Mitch wouldn't say anything today, pending a formal announcement from Justice Breyer. But the usual suspects in his army of ghouls are gearing up for a fight. Lindsey Graham put out an almost shockingly factual statement, noting if Democrats hang together, which I expect they will, they have the power to replace Justice Breyer in 2022 without one Republican vote in support, adding elections have consequences. Happens to be true. There was also insurrectionist fist pumping Missouri Senator Josh Hawley. He put out a statement too, albeit a stupid one, saying expect a major battle and Biden should nominate someone who loves America. Huh. In other words, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer does have his work cut out for him. He says President Biden's nominee will get a hearing with deliberate speed. Justice Breyer, who was nominated by President Clinton in 1994 and has served for decades as a stalwart of the liberal wing, authoring rulings on abortion and the death penalty, among others, has yet to make it official. He's argued that justices should be loyal to the law and not to political parties. Democrats are aiming to confirm any Biden Supreme Court nominee, whoever it may be, on a similar time frame as when Republicans rushed through Justice Amy Coney Barrett's nomination just weeks before the 2020 election. She was confirmed in just... 27 days. Joining me now, Ellie Mustal, justice correspondent for The Nation, Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian and host of Fireside History on MSNBC's The Choice on Peacock, and Erin Carmon, senior correspondent for New York Magazine and co-author of the great book, Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I have missed you, Erin Carmon. I haven't seen you in many, no, many a year. You, um, I
4: missed you too.
0: It's so great to see you. So I'm going to start with you. Um, you having been a great biographer of, uh, the notorious RBG, uh, I wonder what you make of this opening, um, and what Biden might do with it.
4: Well, I think it's clear that Breyer, um, among many other things, looked to the tragic example of Ruth Bader Ginsburg Uh, because of her decision not to retire in the Obama administration. And we can talk about what her reasons were, but she did not choose to do so while the Democrats controlled the Senate before 2014. Um, As you just mentioned, Amy Coney Barrett was rushed through against her stated wishes Uh, Breyer not only can see that his dear friend and fellow justice uh, experienced that kind of undoing of her legacy uh, and the denial of her dying wish, he can also see that uh, he can read a poll just like anyone else. He served on the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee as lead counsel. He's a pragmatic political animal. Uh, He realizes that the clock is ticking and certainly there were many progressive advocates willing to remind him that the clock was ticking and that he had an opportunity to While it may not shape the ideological balance of the court, as you mentioned, he has the opportunity to make sure that his uh, leaving the court will not create greater damage, because we know a 5-4 court was bad for progressives. We know a 6-3 court could do even more, and a 7-2 court, no progressive wants to imagine.
0: And, and, you know, Michael, if you could just sort of zoom us out here and talk about the historical context, because, you know, right, this isn't a change in the ideological makeup of the court, but it is a long-term change should— you know, President Biden nominates somebody really young um, that could serve on the court, you know, for 40, 50, you know, for 40 years or so, you know, or whatever, 30, 40 years. Um, so what does it mean, um, big picture, for Biden to have this chance? And what would it mean and what would it say about the Republicans if they try to fight it anyway or if some Democrats join them and try to block it?
1: Well, I agree with you, Joy. The statement that was made by the senator from Missouri about appointing someone who loves the country, that was stupid and it was almost slanderous. Any president is going to do this, even a president that you may not uh, agree with, shows how, how far our country has come. But no, this is these have been milestones on the court and in American society. You know, it took until 1967, as you all know, for there to be a black person on the Supreme Court. LBJ chose Thurgood Marshall, and he actually created an artificial vacancy to do it, appointed Ramsey Clark as attorney general, which meant that Clark's father, who was a justice on the Supreme Court, had to get off and create a place for Thurgood, good for him. Reagan in 1981, Reagan didn't do everything right by a very long shot, but he did appoint the first woman to the Supreme Court. Why should it have taken two centuries? So here we mm-hmm. have a case where Joe Biden has committed himself to what the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court should have happened a very long time ago, or it has to look like. it.
0: Yeah, indeed. And, Ellie, you know, I think I think we know what. uh Josh Holly meant when he said uh, who loves America because any, well, let's put up the list any of these nominees uh, who are black women are going to automatically, you know, be called, you know, the human embodiment of critical race theory. And they're going to be gone after on issues that are very directly related to race. Um, the, the argument against them will be highly racialized um, by Republicans because by Love America, they mean be the uncritical of America's history when it comes to race and specifically when it comes to black people. That's how I read it. Uh, and I wonder what you make of this opportunity that Biden has and what he might do with it. And if you have any kind of tea leaves on who he might choose of this incredible list of, of uh, judges.
2: I mean, don't look. Twist. First, let's dis- dispense with the qualifications argument. All of the women that are that are being bandied about right now are immaculately qualified. Um, especially when you talk about, you know, or in particular when you talk about a Kentaji Brown Jackson, who's maybe the leader in the clubhouse right now. We're talking about a woman with a Harvard college degree, a Harvard law degree, who has served as the head of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, who has been a long-term judge, who is sitting on the D.C. Circuit right now. You don't get more qualified than a Brown Jackson or a Leandra Kruger or a Justice Childs, you'll get more qualified. And quite frankly, of the 115 people who have served on the Supreme Court, 108 of them have been white guys. So maybe it's actually the other side that's just been looking for the best available white men around. Whereas, whereas when, we look at, when we look at the more diverse complexity of the country, we can find truly the most qualified candidate for the job. So we should have no issue about their qualifications Who say nothing of their moral qualification. Because I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure, I don't know for a fact, but I am pretty sure that Joe Biden will not nominate somebody who has been credibly accused of, of trying to rape somebody when they were in high school. I am pretty sure, I don't know this for a fact, that Joe Biden will not nominate somebody who has been accused of perjury in front of Congress over a previous co- confirmation hearing. So there's there there are the professional qualifications, but there are also the moral qualifications. that, As far as I can see, every one of those black women that we've listed had.
0: And, you know, to that point, I mean, I feel like in some ways um, Republican nominations have either been um, sort of a, a, a bait and switch on, on, on black folks as when Clarence Thomas was nominated to replace the great Thurgood Marshall. And so we're, they're saying, here, we're going to give you a black person, but it's going to be somebody whose agenda on the court is going to be antithetical to everything Thurgood Marshall stood for, which also is one of the reasons that makes me happy to see Sherilyn Eiffel's name on that list because, of course, she sits in that same uh, role at legal, uh, the NAACP Legal Defense uh, Education Fund. But, I mean, you know, there was sort of a... It's all, or, or like punitive or highly stringently ideological, irregardless or or regardless of their moral qualifications. You think of a Kavanaugh and same thing with Clarence Thomas, the things they were accused of. And the fact that that court decides whether women have control over our bodies with two men on it like that um, is is scandalous for a, a democracy. So what kind of moral sort of I don't know what kind of moral case ought Biden make when it comes to his nominees, because they are going to get attacked. These are black women if he does nominate a black woman.
4: Absolutely. And I would say just to add to the playbook that that Ellie was laying out, you're already seeing Republican legal elites attack. Uh, for example, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who was the front runner, was a former Breyer clerk using the same playbook that you saw used against Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Um, And and one of those is saying like attacking her intelligence, despite the sterling credentials that Ellie laid out Um, again, very racialized, very misogynistic overtones, I would say to these kinds of attacks. I would also say that after the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, who they openly Hmm. said we should nominate her because she's a woman and uh, Ramesh Poniru, for example, wrote an op ed saying we should nominate her because she's a woman and it will look better when we overrule Roe v. Wade. Amy Hmm. Coney Barrett had a very thin resume. She only spent three years as a judge. Uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, for example, spent eight years on the district court and is now serving on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, So it would be very rich. But of course, it would not be surprising if they had the chutzpah to uh, attack the credentials of a qualified black woman after the Amy Coney Barrett situation. Um, And then substantively, I mean, this this next justice may not be seated in time for the gutting of Roe v. Wade. But we know it is black women and women of color generally who are disproportionately affected uh, by these restrictions and, and who suffer disproportionately from the high maternal mortality rates in this country. And so, um, unfortunately, even if the court uh, guts Roe v. Wade, it may not even be the end of the story. And we know for sure that the, that the court has affirmative action in the crosshairs to oh, absolutely. even if it is in dissent to have a black woman in the room speaking up. Uh, to the Brett Kavanaugh's and the Neil Gorsuch's of the world will be incredibly resonant, even if it'll be a really unfun job.
0: I think that is so true, you know, and Michael, that that's that's the big picture, right, is that, you know, these decisions are being made about the lives of black and brown people, the lives of Muslims, whether they can travel to this country, the lives of students, whether they can go to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, by people who have no relationship to them in their lives, who don't understand them as anything other than, you know, you kind of look like my driver, maybe, you know what I mean? Like they don't understand these communities. You know, how important is it just from the big picture to at least have Black women who are the biggest supporters of Democrats in terms of the vote that is turned out in the room um, to look across that that that, you know, that lectern um, as people like Kavanaugh and uh, Thomas, et cetera, are taking our rights away.
1: It's hugely important because they have, you know, everyone is a stakeholder. And last time I noticed Black women in this country were hugely important, contributing stakeholders who are at the moment not represented on the Supreme Court. And, you know, the other thing is that all these candidates that you mentioned this evening, Joy, every single one of them not only has wonderful background, as Ellie mentioned, uh, not only smart people, not only beliefs that mesh with the president of the United States, but These are all people who are persuasive. And since we're talking about Stephen Breyer tonight, one reason I, at least I honor, and I think I speak for all of us, Stephen Breyer is not only his views and not only most of his rulings, but this is a very smart, persuasive man who has actually gotten people on the other side and people who may have been wavering to agree with him on certain issues that a less persuasive person might not have done. Final point, Uh, Joy, you and I, I think, have established that one of our least favorite presidents is Woodrow Wilson, and uh, Woodrow (laughs) Wilson appointed in 1914, I think you see where I'm going, a guy named James McReynolds, who served on the court for almost 30 years, a vicious anti-Semite. There were two Jewish justices when he was there, Cardozo and uh, also Brandeis, he shunned them during all that period, wouldn't uh-huh. even be in a picture with them.
0: This is the wow. ugly history. Uh, this is going to be very interesting. And I we, we await to see what happens with the two usual suspects on the Democratic side, whether they will stand by this nominee, whoever she might be. Um, we, we shall see. Um, and as Ellie would say, maybe he should just like add more people on there, expand the court. That might be a good way to do things, change the way this thing works. Ellie Mastal, what Michael Beschloss, in Carmon up next on The Readout. The DOJ is looking into the fraudulent slates of Republican electors, and it's a BFD, as Joe Biden would say. Also, how to explain Putin's conduct in Ukraine? I have a theory. Something's missing in his life, something very orange and very compliant. Plus, the guy Ron DeSantis picked to lead Florida's COVID response, such as it is, probably thought that this was a gotcha question at his confirmation hearing
4: today. Do the vaccines work against preventing COVID-19? Yes or no.
5: Yes or no questions are are not that that easy to find in science.
6: And it
0: didn't get any better from that, from there. (laughs) And tonight's absolute worst, as one high school student so eloquently put it, will never be remembered in history as the good guys. The readout continues after this.
7: in terms of, of fraudulent uh, elector certifications is, has been reported. We've received those referrals. Our prosecutors are looking at, the, at those. And um, I can't say uh, anything more on ongoing investigations.
0: That was Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco dropping the bombshell news yesterday that the Justice Department has opened an investigation into the fake election certificates submitted by pro-Trump Republicans in seven states. In five of those states, the Republicans not only forged official documents, they impersonated real electors in an effort to falsify the results and award Donald Trump the presidency. And as we now know, they did all of this at the behest of the Trump campaign, which ironically means the whole scheme could represent a conspiracy to commit election fraud. That said, these fake electors are also subject to the laws of their respective states and should still be held accountable there without delay. To that point, the office of Michigan's attorney general told The Washington Post they're already cooperating with the feds as they pursue parallel efforts. And the readout is first to report tonight that the nonpartisan pro-democracy group Law Forward is now demanding similar action from Wisconsin's attorney general. They point out a total of eight state felony statutes that Wisconsin's 10 fake Trump electors have have allegedly violated. Meanwhile, there's also a constitutional remedy to hold lawmakers accountable for supporting the insurrection of January 6th. The 14th Amendment explicitly bars lawmakers from holding office if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the country. It was originally designed to prevent prevent former Confederates from reclaiming their seats in Congress after the Civil War. But it's now being put to good use in the state of North Carolina, where a group of voters are challenging the eligibility of Congressman Madison Cawthorn to run for re-election. Cawthorn, of course, was a prominent cheerleader for the insurrection both before and after it took place. One of the lawyers pressing the case told the New York Times, it should not be difficult to prove you are not an insurrectionist. It only seems to be difficult for Madison Cawthorn. If successful, the challenge could have big implications for other lawmakers who also cheered on the insurrection. People like Mo Brooks, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs and Margie Q. Green with me now, former Republican strategist, Steve Schmidt and Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist. Thank you all for being here. Um, let's talk about this. Thank you both for being here. And, and I will start with you, um, Steve, um, since you were formerly a Republican um, uh, strategist, Madison Cawthorn before and after. January 6th. I'm just going to put up some of what he said. Call your congressman. You can lightly threaten them. The future of the republic hinges on the actions of a solitary few. It's time to fight. That's January 4th, August 29, 2021. He referred to insurrection defendants as political prisoners spoke of going to bust them out. That same day, he also added, if our election systems continue to be rigged, it's going to lead to one place and that's bloodshed. His lawyer is now using, citing the Confederate amnesty act to defend him. His lawyer talks about this 1872 Amnesty Act, which removed all persons whatsoever from the disability under Section 3 as a result in engaging in He's using the Confederate defense. Your thoughts?
3: Well, um, his statements speak for themselves, Joy. He is engaged in what will in the end be a wide-ranging conspiracy to overthrow the legitimately and democratically elected government of the United States. Uh, That's what this is all about. Now, with Madison Cawthorn putting aside for a moment that he is a political extremist and has proven that many times over and over, this is a character like the talented Mr. Ripley. Everything about this person, and I mean everything, the details of his accident, his supposed admission and denial into Annapolis. Every assertion of fact that he has ever made about himself and who he is is false. He is like an imposter character from a movie, and he is a member of Congress in his mid-20s who is constantly inciting violence on one social media platform or another. So this lawsuit is meritorious, it's appropriate, and he is just one of a number of members of Congress that by the time this is all over um, will be clearly implicated in this conspiracy, um, not by the things that we don't already know, um, but powerfully by their own words over this last year. So, So- Look, he he is what he appears to be, a, a young fascist uh, who detests American democracy, political extremist who yearns and thirsts for political violence to break out. Uh, he is appalling and dangerous.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's really clear. And I think the thing, Michelle, is that none of what's been done in terms of this insurrection— was done in secret. It was all done quite openly. I mean, these fake electors were just sending in to the National Archives to, to saying, we want um, you know, the vice president to use these certificates that are forged. All of it was done quite brazenly and quite openly, as if they either didn't understand what insurrection is and what a coup is while they were doing one. I mean, there were memos circulating from the White House to Congress passed around. It, it, it feels like the Republican Party as a whole just embraced the idea that, yeah, we're going to overthrow the government in quite a cap Way. Let me play uh, Boris Epstein. He used to be a, uh, a some type of parent on uh, MSNBC. He used to be in, uh, come on here and do some politi- political talk, just openly admitting to Ari Melber <laughs> that he
3: was involved. Yes, I was part of the process to make sure there were alternate electors for when, as we hoped, the challenges to the seated electors would be heard and would be successful per the 12th Amendment of the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act. Everything that was done was done legally by the Trump legal team, by, according to, to the rules and under the leadership of, of Rudy Giuliani. We fought for the truth.
0: He said illegally, uh, but I think he, he thought he meant legally. Um, Peter Navarro was also on that same day saying, yeah, we did it. Uh, your thoughts, Michelle?
6: That's always been the trick of Trump and people around him. Right. Is that is to do it in plain sight, because if you if the conspiracy is in plain sight, then it looks less like a conspiracy. Right. It kind of is discombobulating. Are they actually doing this? And something else that you see over and over again with the people around Trump is that the line between, you know, kind of fascism and farce is often hard to parse. So just because it seems ridiculous, these, you know, fake electors, these fake that you can just, you know, go to the coffee shop and make a certificate and send it into the National Archives um, just because it's laughable. Doesn't mean that there wasn't also a real thought, and I think that when you know when you have an authoritarian government, you can put forward the the laughable, the farcical, with a straight face and kind of demand that people accept uh, the absurd, and that's what you see from Trump and the people around him over and over again. But again, I think the shoddiness of it, the amateurness of so much of it, can in some ways obscure the seriousness of it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And Steve, I think that's the challenge, right, is that they, they, they make a mockery of what a congressman or a senator is supposed to be like, but they still hold the power that a congressman or a senator has. They still hold that power. And so they're dangerous, even if they're stupid.
3: Of, of course exactly. they are. They, they hold real power. Um, Some of them, uh, in the case of Trump and uh, his appointees across the depth and breadth of the federal government during the pandemic response, held the power of life and death. There was a meeting in the White House where Jared Kushner quite deliberately decided uh, that there would be no federal response in the early days so that this could be stuck onto the plates of the blue state governors, the feeling being that they would suffer politically, and that Trump would somehow be immunized from it. So it was on one hand profoundly stupid politically, uh, but more importantly, an act of evil, an immoral act that consigned a lot of Americans to death. So when you take people who are immoral, who are undemocratic, who have contempt For people who look differently from them, who worship God differently from them, who have that autocratic impulse and you give them power, there are consequences. And everything that's unfolding in the world at this hour is a result of the chaos that was unleashed over these years that culminated in its end with an actual subversive conspiracy to undermine the duly elected president and his government in 21st century America. Uh, It couldn't be more serious. This is one of the most profoundly important things that has ever occurred in our history. And if it's not dealt with, we consign ourselves to an obvious fate. We will lose democracy to people who want power greater than a people who want to preserve democracy. And this is important. Because it's the only system that has ever existed that places the dignity of the human being above the power of the state.
0: And last word to you on this, Michelle, some might call it cacistocracy, but we have it right in front of us. I mean, (laughs) these are the worst of people, but there is still a potential that they could still assume power next year.
6: I mean, I think next year. I think more than uh, potential. I think it's extraordinarily likely that you're going to have the party of, you know, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn in control of at least one House of Congress. And not only are they going to end this investigation, but they're going to, you know, as they've said. Start their own trumped up investigations. Right. I mean, they're talking about investigations into Dr. Fauci into, you know, kind of to try their investigations to legitimize the big lie. And so we're likely to see, you know, a House of Congress become an ongoing Trumpist circus.
0: A circus indeed, and a dangerous one. Steve Schmidt Michelle Goldberg, thank you both very much. Still ahead, a U.S. envoy delivers America's response to Russian demands about Ukraine, leaving the door open for further negotiations. I have a pretty good idea about why Putin is lashing out at Ukraine right now. We'll discuss next.
1: Our actions over the past week have sharpened the choice facing Russia now we've laid out a diplomatic path. We've lined up steep consequences should Russia choose further aggression. We've stepped forward with more support for Ukraine's security and economy. And we and our allies and partners are united across the board. It remains up to Russia to decide how to respond. We're ready either way.
0: With Ukraine undergoing, uh, under growing threat, from a Russian invasion. The United States has been clear that while there is still a diplomatic path forward to ease tensions, Russia should not test U.S. resolve to inflict severe consequences, and NATO's resolve to inflict severe consequences should they choose the wrong path. The United States is joined by our NATO allies in confronting Vladimir Putin's apparent need to project a Soviet Union-sized strength from a diminutive Russia. Or it might just be that Putin is still adjusting to his new reality after four years of having a complete sycophant in the White House spouting Russian state-controlled media talking points on his behalf.
3: I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. I think Putin's been a very strong leader for Russia. but I mean, He's been a lot stronger than our leader, that I can tell you. I believe that President Putin really feels, and he feels strongly, that he did not meddle in our election. What he believes is what he believes. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We've got a lot of killers. Why well, you think our country's so innocent?
0: Joining me now is Nina Khrushcheva, Associate Dean and Professor of International Affairs at the New School. Uh, Nina, it's great to see you. It's been a long time. Um, oh, I, very I, I, nice I have to... Have to- see you again. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I am curious to get your take on this because, you know, Republicans, of course, are in this country are using uh, this situation, the growing th- uh, sort of tension over Ukraine to say that, well, this shows that, you know, Biden is weak, President Biden is weak, that, you know, the Russians only respond to strength. But, you know, as I see it, I don't that seems to be the opposite of what's true. I mean, what 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 the United States was to Russia for the past four years under the previous president kind of a lapdog, kind of a bestie, kind of a, you know, like a road dog. Like, you know, Trump really sucked up to Putin and that had to inflate his ego. And not having that anymore seems to me to be part of why he's behaving the way he is now. Is that is that true or, or is that where my off track? Well,
8: I'm not I'm sort of I'm sort of agreeing with you and disagreeing with you because I think Republicans are totally wrong that. Uh, Putin responds to strength and therefore Biden is weak and therefore Putin behaving this way. I, I don't think it's it, it's true. And actually, it is incredibly uh, hypocritical of them because they were supporting Trump's love for Putin all four years. And suddenly they've become tremendously critical of it. So that is ridiculous. But I also uh, not entirely of um, uh, that thought that uh uh, Trump was a lapdog for Putin. Trump does love strong power. He does love dictators. It's not just Putin he loves. He loves all of them. Kim yeah. Jong Un, Erdogan, yeah. uh, Xi Jinping, Ping, and, and, and whatnot. And so actually, Russians were much more, um, I mean, I, I in, in the public sphere, in, uh, the Kremlin related media, of course, they all love Trump. But the Kremlin itself was actually very, very, calm and quiet about that, although certainly Putin appreciated the fact that uh, that uh, there is a president in the United States who says, oh, Putin is the greatest. So I think it's 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 not that straightforward, but certainly the Republican talking point right now is that Biden's weak, and therefore is bordering on the insanity.
0: What do they make uh, inside the Kremlin uh, of the fact that, you know, the most watched Cable news host right now has replaced Donald Trump as being the chief sycophant um, for Putin. Seems to be a huge fan of his and is sort of teaching his audience to also be fans, to the point where some of his audience are calling Republican congressmen and saying, no, side with Putin. Um, the Daily Beast has a piece out saying that the Kremlin Kremlin TV, that official state TV in Russia, is now worried that Carlson's um over over Putin bias, his sort of you know, you know, love for Putin has gone too far. A Russian television host described uh, Carlson as sometimes it seems that he attended advanced training courses at the Russian foreign ministry. Here's a little bit of what Tucker does on his show.
3: Why is it disloyal to side with Russia but loyal to side with Ukraine? They're both foreign countries that don't care anything about the United States. Kind of strange. So at this point, NATO exists primarily to torment Vladimir Putin. Why do I care why do about what's going on be, in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia? Be, be, because, and I'm serious. Be, like uh, why do I, I tell you tell why? And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Be, because, which I am.
0: And you know, what does that do? do inside of Russia to have that kind of support on cable television in the United States night after night?
8: Well, it is Fox News. So, you know, it's not like he has support on cable television. He has support on Fox News. So, and there's certain reputation in Russians, even Russians do understand. Uh, what it is. But I do have news for Tucker Carlson, though, because I was um, in Moscow for a year and a half writing a book and uh, was on news shows over there. And I actually mentioned Tucker Carlson as that example. And nobody knew who he was. So he's a good talking point on the Kremlin related TV, but a normal person and even 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 those who watch the Kremlin TV would immediately forget. There is some dude on Fox News talks well about Putin. But who really cares? So I think it's it's slightly for Tucker Carlson, it's kind of good uh, post-truth, uh, fake news reality that he himself created, deciding like Trump, he's going to be pro-Putin. But it really doesn't quite registrate Russia.
0: Yeah, indeed. And very quick. We're out of time. But I just want to put a map up to show, you know, they, they try to he tries to pass off Ukraine as this little tiny country. That's not important. It's huge. It's a huge country, second only in size to Russia itself. Very quickly before we go, Nina, do you expect war is a real risk here? Or do you think that there's a back down? There's a way that we wind up backing down from war?
8: Well, it's it's a forty million people country, so it's quite large. So, absolutely not a small country yes, at all. It's huge. Um, I think there is a path path out of it. I think that maybe uh, if they can agree on uh, kind of back down for now, at least militarily, to support Ukraine, but make sure that politically it becomes something yep. uh, completely independent, become part of the European Union immediately. Yep. I think that's a good path forward.
0: Nina Khrushcheva, thank you very much, and can't wait to see that book come out. Um, Cheers. Tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, Florida State Democrats walked out of today's confirmation hearings for the state's new blatantly unqualified Surgeon General. But did that stop Republicans from giving him the big thumbs up? What do you think? We'll be right back. Dr. Joseph Latipo, who Florida Governor Ron DeSantis picked to be the state surgeon general, is one step closer to getting officially confirmed. And that is bad news for Floridians. During his confirmation hearing today, the doctor refused to say that masks and vaccines work to curb COVID.
4: Do the vaccines work against preventing COVID 19? Yes or no? Okay.
5: okay. Recognized. Okay. Well, oh, thank you again, Senator. So, you know, it, it, yes or no questions are, are not that uh, that easy to find in science.
4: We have an extreme amount of respect for this process, you, Mr. Chair, and the Senate. However, we don't feel that we're getting any answers.
0: The Democrats then walked out of the hearing. But because they're the minority on the committee, the Republicans were able to advance Latipal's nomination. It is a dangerous development in the Republican scheme to keep us in the pandemic, apparently forever elevating doctors who use their authority to spread misinformation about covid joining me now is dr uche blackstock founder and ceo of advancing health equity um and i remember you talking uh, previously welcome the uh, great to see you dr blackstock about you know being a former schoolmate at, at harvard medical school with with this man dr latipo what do you make of his inability repeatedly asked to answer the simple question do vaccines work against covid
7: Joy, I was just absolutely mortified. I texted my sister who also attended Harvard Medical School with me. I said, we need to round up our girls and go down there and get this man because he is dangerous. You know, it's one thing to spread misinformation. It's another thing to do it when you are in a leadership position uh, like he is and in such an influential position, but he's totally disregarding the science. The data that is out there that's showing how effective vaccines are, and he actually struggled to not answer that question. That was the shocking part.
0: Yeah, and do, uh, well, let me, let me play one more thing. Do you, well, first of all, very quickly, do you think that he really doesn't believe in vaccines and is trying to not just openly, you know, go, you know, RFK Jr. on us, or if he's just being... A politician. Because he also, if you'll recall, stood up in front of the Supreme Court in his Mm -hmm. white coat with a bunch of other doctors, one of whom said, You get COVID from having sex with demons. Does he really believe that stuff? I, I,
7: I think he has ulterior motives power, influence, money, probably is also very important to him. I don't think he actually believes vaccines are effective. I bet he is vaccinated and boosted. I bet his entire family is. I bet his children, if they're eligible, are also vaccinated. So this is all. Um, because yeah. of, of politics, because um, he has not prioritized, you know, his, his medical duties. And he, essentially he's violating the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. So every time yeah. he gets up there at a press conference or a hearing and says something that is anti-science, he's violating the Hippocratic Oath. And at this point, I am shocked that his license hasn't been suspended or revoked.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things here. I don't know if we have the time here. The, the, CBS 12 reported Monday that Latipo, it was is balking at the FDA's decision to limit the use of Regeneron because that's where the money is in Florida. Is giving everybody Regeneron after they get COVID. Here he is.
5: Really, we are we are laser focused on data. I mean, it's just I think if if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's the importance of looking at data and not necessarily listening and following what other people or people that the media label as experts say. So we're you know, whatever anyone says, Florida is going to absolutely positively put data as number one in deciding in making forgive me are you
1: saying that the food and drug administration are not an experts as to what drugs to approve and what drugs not to approve
5: i'm saying that florida is going to make decisions about what we treat how we treat patients how we manage patients how we inform health policy in in florida based on data
0: i mean that sounds like he's in the what do you make of that (laughs)
7: Well, well, he's not being honest because he's not following the data, the data that's out there that's showing how effective vaccines are against the the worst and most severe outcomes of of COVID-19. It it honestly, Joy, it just doesn't make um, any sense to me. So that's why I think he has ulterior motives and he's putting that ahead of his obligations um, as a physician and someone who should be working in service to um, the communities and the state.
0: Let me play somebody else who is not a doctor. This is a guy uh, named uh, Berenson, uh, Alex Berenson. He's actually a New York Times reporter and thriller novelist, not a doctor. Here he is on Tucker last night.
1: The mRNA COVID vaccines need to be withdrawn from the market now. No one should get them. No one should get boosted. No one should get double boosted. They are a dangerous and ineffective
5: product at this point.
0: This guy was banned by Twitter for repeated violations of COVID policy. That might be the most dangerous thing that's happening on television right now. That blatant statement on Fox News. What do you what do you what do you make of that?
7: No, 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 absolutely. And here you have people who are not physicians. They're not public health professionals giving out health information. We've gotten to a really dire point in this pandemic where people with no public health or medical background are giving out medical information. This is incredibly troubling, Joy. (laughs)
0: it is it is incredibly frightening the u.s global uh, florida death toll so the u.s covid death are at their highest level since last winter's peak the world health organization says global case the global case tally has set a record in the last week we are in dangerous territory indeed dr Uche blackstock thank you very much really appreciate you, thank you Joy. cheers stay right th- thank you just stay right there everyone for tonight's absolute worst and if you're in texas you know use this time to go hide your books go hurry we'll be right back hide them With the midterm elections inching closer, Republicans have done a good job ginning up fear and outrage over culture issues. States like Texas, Mississippi, Missouri, and Tennessee are using their favorite new tool, banning books as a way of purging things that make them feel icky. It just so happens that those things have to do with black, brown and LGBTQ plus issues. Let's take a beat and remember that this is the party that loves to accuse Democrats of being cancel happy snowflakes who are always just so deep in their feelings. Well, pot, please meet kettle. Naturally, Texas has been at the forefront of the book-banning business because state Republicans are falling all over themselves to burnish their MAGA bona fides. While they would like you to believe that this is an organic movement, many are being egged on by right-wing advocacy groups who are rebranding their anti-intellectual, anti-history antics as parents' rights and targeting public schools. They just never mention which parents' rights they're actually fighting for. You can thank Texas State Representative Matt Krause for the warm embrace of state-sponsored censorship. Krause, who chairs the Texas House Committee on General Investigating, launched a Stalin-style investigation into school books and curriculums. He has sent a list of more than 800 books to school leaders throughout the state and asked them to review if they had any books with so-called controversial topics. It should come as no surprise that when the Dallas Morning News did an analysis of the list, it found that of the first 100 books listed, 97 were written by women, people of color, or LGBTQ authors. Because, of course. The school district in Granbury, Texas, a town of roughly 11,000 people, has created their own committee to review any books that include controversial topics currently under investigation by the state and legislature. A representative for the district, which again is in Texas, not Communist China or the old Soviet Union, told a local newspaper that they basically really don't care if you don't like it because, quote, we understand the conservative climate of our community and that a large majority recognizes that several social and cultural topics are best left to parents and families to discuss with their children, which they won't, of course, because they feel icky about it. Last night, the school board held its monthly meeting and the kids that they pretend to protect tore into the school board for their book banning.
7: This ban would have adverse effects on the well being and education of our student body. As students, we deserve a complete education free from bias.
6: The job of the superintendent and the school board is to not only protect the students in this district, but to make them feel like they have a place in this community. But I gotta tell you, from what I'm seeing so far, you are failing at your job.
7: No government, and public school is an extension of government, has ever banned books and banned information from its public and been remembered in history as the good guys.
0: See, these kids don't want to be stupid. So tonight, I want to join these kids and call out the Granbury Independent School Board, State Representative Matt Kraus, and Governor Abbott, because they're Orwellian. Make our kids dumber. State-sponsored, state-sanctioned censorship is indeed the Stalinist, weird, awful, absolute worst. And that's tonight's readout. Thanks for joining us.